Cicely Tyson is a living legend. From her early days as a model, through standout roles in hit movies and on Broadway, this remarkable performer has been breaking down barriers for people of color for decades, and she shows no signs of slowing down. Cicely's made a conscious choice to only take roles that matter, and instead of playing them, she embodies them. Her characters are iconic. She was nominated for both the Oscar and the Golden Globe for her role in 1972's Sounder, and won two Emmy Awards for the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman. She was a standout in The Help, and could be considered a regular in some of Tyler Perry's most memorable films. But if any one role cemented Cicely's place in the hearts of millions, it would be her performance in the groundbreaking miniseries, Roots. Even after 40 years, she's still proud to be recognized around the world as Kunta Kinte's mother, Binta. Everybody has a story, and there is something to be learned from every experience. Use your life as a class. This is Masterclass with Cicely Tyson. No matter where I go in the world, they will say to me, Roots, <laughs> I know what I did. They will always say, Roots. I had been to Dahomey, Africa. I had an opportunity to get a feel of the country itself, made lots of notes, taped the, the dialogue, just wanting to get to know who my forefathers were. Spent a lot of time with the women, not being aware that this role was forthcoming. I met Alex Haley after he finished writing the book, and we spent a lot of time together because all I have to do is, is find someone who has something to say that will enrich my life, and they can't get rid of me. <laughs> and so I was given the role of Kunta Kinte's mom. That was an extraordinary experience because they tried in every way they could to make it as authentic as they could make it. And so it really felt like being an African woman. It impacted the world in such a way, it stimulated their curiosity about who they were and what they were and why they were. I felt I was part of educating the entire world. Everybody wanted to know, who am I? Where did I come from? Why am I here? Huh? And that's what the world took away, not just me, the world. I was born in New York. I think I was born in New York. <laughs> I don't know, my mother isn't here anymore, so I can't ask her. But I was born in the United States, that I know. And my mother, who came from the island of Nevis, lived on the east side, the area that is now known as El Barrio. I've had all of my life a photographic memory. And I remember looking up at the building and the numbers 219, mind you, I was two years old, 219 East 102nd Street. 
And that's my favorite number, 219, because it's the first number that I recognized, and it just stayed with me. And then when I graduated from high school, I went to the Urban League in Harlem, and they sent me to interview for a job at the American Red Cross, and I was hired. I served as the secretary to the vice president, and also I would type up case histories. I remember sitting to the left of Mrs. Johnson, who had been there forever, right? And I remember this party, and I remember them presenting her with this watch, and I sat there looking at it. I said, after 30 years, a watch? Oh, my God. You know, I, I, I was looking at this woman who put so much time into this organization. I said, I'm never, ever going to be any place where they're going to give me, after that length of time, a watch. I said, I'm going to buy my own wristwatch. I'm not going to be any place for no 30 years for somebody to hand me a wristwatch and say, thank you very much. The other thing I found that disturbed me working there was this woman came in and she, was, she seemed very disturbed. After she visited with the psychiatrist, he gave me the case to type up. And it turned out that she uh, uh, was married, had a little girl about eight years old. And this child was molested by her father. And when asked why she didn't go to the authorities, she said, she was afraid to report him because he was going to lose his job. I couldn't get over that. I wondered how a mother could allow her child to be molested by its father and not do something because she was afraid he'd lose his job. But then it also made me realize what it meant to be black and not have the security of knowing that she could have reported him and gotten justice for that child. So I had to get out of there. <sighs> I can't spend my life sitting down at a typewriter typing out those kinds of case histories. I just can't do it. And so I pushed myself away from the desk, and I announced to the entire world that I was sure that God didn't put me on the face of the earth to type on a typewriter for the rest of my life. There was something else out there for me to do. I don't know what it is, but I will find it. And I got up and I left. The modeling came about through a friend of mine who wanted company to go to modeling school. I just went along to keep her company. I enjoyed modeling. It was um, quite a change from what I had been doing. And it was there, from there, that I went into modeling and then into acting. And then things began to happen. There was a time when I had two or three jobs in the same day. I'd go here and do a little bit, here and do a little bit, here and do a little bit. And people began to talk about, you know, this new actress Cicely Tyson, and next thing I knew, I was here in front of you. <laughs> My mother wasn't happy about what I was doing. She didn't like it. 
she told me I couldn't stay in her house and do that, whatever that was. Being brought up in the church, you know, you learn that a woman has to carry herself in a certain way, and you follow the teachings of the church. She really thought I was going to live in a den of iniquity because that's what show business meant to her. It didn't have any decency. I was called by Vinette Carroll and asked to come and read a play called Dark of the Moon, and it was to be done at the Y in Harlem. My mother heard that I was going to do this play. She told my sister, hmm, she's going up there and make a fool of herself, okay? So I decided to invite her, and she came, and she brought a friend. I made sure I knew exactly where she was going to sit so that I wouldn't look in that direction, okay? From the moment I walked out on the stage, I heard her say, oh, my God. <laughs> she kept talking to her friend all during the time. She thought she was whispering, but I could hear every word she said. It drove me crazy. At the end of this play, I come out, and my mother is standing at the door accepting congratulatory remarks from the people. <laughs> yes, I always knew, ever since she was a little girl, that she was going, you know, she liked to sing and dance, and so I always knew she was going to do this. I said, wait a minute. <laughs> my mother, who put me out of her house, and didn't speak to me for almost three years, is standing there telling this barefaced story to these people, huh? Right? And so I then knew that it was something within me that she felt was a gift. I am a firm believer in divine guidance. My mother said when I was about six months old, she was pushing me in the baby carriage. And she was stopped by a woman who was admiring this newborn baby. And she said to my mother, take care of that child. She has a sixth sense. Now she said when I was a child, I could always tell her when something was going to happen in the family, around the family, I didn't like it. I was beginning to think that something was radically wrong. And it was my cousin. He was a psychologist. He said, let's go for a walk. He took me to a bookstore. And he bought me all of these books. And he said to me, we all have it, some more developed than others. Years later, I had this dream that I fell in the street and that I had my left hand extended for help. And so I, I, there was something about it that was very strange, very eerie. And I suddenly had this chill. I was cold as clay. Somebody's trying to get a message to me. The phone rang. It was my sister. And I said, how are you? She said, not good. Mother just passed. She got all dressed and six feet away from her door. She dropped in the street with her hand. 
And when I say I'm divinely guided, I, I just let it come wherever it comes. I make sure that I leave it and let it do what it has to do. And I tell you, I got to the point where I no longer feared it. I welcomed it, as a matter of fact. Before I do anything, I will read a script 50 times. Because every time I read it, I found out something different about the character. And so that is what helps me add to the piece of the puzzle. I was asked to do a show that dealt with the emerging African nations. And at that time, I was wearing my hair as I am now, straightened, and uh, I wasn't comfortable in the woman's skin with that style of hair because I knew they didn't wear the, uh, their hair straightened in Africa. And so I went through rehearsal with the straightened hair, but the night before the show, which was being done live, I went to a barbershop in Harlem called the Shalimar, where Duke Ellington used to have his hair cut. And I walked in, and I was greeted by a gentleman who was a barber, and his name was Streamline. I told him I wanted him to cut my hair very short and then shampoo it so that it would go back to its natural state. And so he sat me in the chair, and he proceeded to cut, and he cut it kind of short up to crop. And I said, that's not it. I want you to cut it as close to my scalp as possible. And then I want you to shampoo it so it goes back to its natural state. He went and sat down. When he had regained, <laughs> he came to me and he said, are you sure that's what you want? I said, yes. So the show was being done live. Okay. The next morning, I go to the studio. I have my hair wrapped in a scarf. I go to makeup and costume. And then when the director said, places, I took the scarf off. You could hear a hair hit the floor. So finally, he walked up to me and he said, Cicely, you cut your hair. And I sheepishly held my head and I shook my head, yes. So he said, you know, I wanted to ask you to do that, but I didn't have the nerve. And then it was George Scott who asked my agent to send me in to meet with them for East Side, West Side. I said, well, what do I do about my hair? They said, your hair, leave it that way. And that is what created the natural hair craze, that show. And my wearing it that way on that because I got letters from hairdressers all over the country telling me that I was affecting their business because their clients were having their hair cut off so they could wear it like the girl on television. The cornrow and sounder. You know, I knew during that period that women in the South cornrowed their hair. So I said that Rebecca would wear her hair in that manner. But every time I changed the hairdo, it had not to do with me. It had to do with authenticating the character that I was playing. Cicely doesn't just play roles. She immerses herself in them. In 1974, she began working on the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman. Remember that scene where she defiantly drinks from the white's only water fountain? Whew. 
That's a classic. For the Emmy-winning role, Cecily would need to play Jane as she aged to almost 100 years old. At the time, producers were concerned that she wouldn't be able to convincingly do that on camera. Well, Cecily Tyson found a way. When I was doing Jane Pittman, they said my body was too straight, that I needed to have some age in my carriage, and they were going to build a hump from my back. And so I said, okay. I didn't know what else to do, so I said, okay. And one day I was in my apartment and I was sweeping the floor. And all of a sudden I felt my left side collapse. I walked to the mirror and I looked in the mirror and I saw this distorted body. I then crawled to the phone and I called the producer and director. I said, forget the hump. I've got it. I guess I am just open. You know, when I'm working, I am 24-7 with that character. It stays in my head. There are things that I say and I do. And I say, where did that come from? Oh, that's her. That's not me. It's a part of me. It's playing the character. So when the time comes, it's just you push the button and it's, it's there. It's, it'll come if you allow it. I mean, that you cannot, you can't buy that. You have to feel it, smell it, taste it. It was just immersing myself completely in her world, in her life. If you give your audience something to cheer about, they'll cheer. When I was doing Jane Pittman, everybody came to me and they were talking about the walk. What walk? The walk to the fountain. Well, what about it? Well, you should, you, you don't know? No. I was so divorced from me, myself, and so completely immersed in Jane that I had no idea what they were talking about. It was a walk. She was going to the fountain. She walked to the fountain. Now, when they screened it, I went in while they made the announcement. And then when they started the film, I left. I was caught by the producer. And he said, you have to stay and see this. I don't watch my work, okay? I do it for you and you and you and you. I don't look at it. So I said, okay, finally. I went upstairs to the projection room and I watched it from there. And when I saw her walk down that road, I simply said, I like that lady. I feel that when I have made whole for myself a character and I enjoy her, it is the overflow of that joy that reaches or doesn't reach the audience. And when they get that, they let you know. When they don't get it, they let you know that too. When I was offered Sounder, they wanted me 
for the school teacher. And I said, I, I don't play the school teacher. I could do that with my pinky. I said, that's no challenge to me. And so I want to play the mother, I said. And they both looked at me and they said, oh, you're too pretty, you're too sexy, you're too this, you're too that, you're too the other. And I said, but I'm an actress. Okay. However, I didn't convince them. And I went home and I started working on the role of the mother. I received, maybe about a month later, a call from my agent saying that the role of the mother was mine. He said, aren't you happy about it? Aren't you excited? I said, no, I always knew it was mine. I was just waiting for them to find out. I was being interviewed by a very sophisticated woman for the LA Times. And uh, she said to me, I didn't believe the relationship between you and Nathan, your husband. And I asked what she meant. She said, well, I don't believe that black people had the kind of relationship that was portrayed in love relationship that was portrayed in that film. So I asked if she realized what she was saying. I said, you're saying that we're not human beings. Huh? Well, she said, well, I don't know them. She's talking to me. <laughs> I don't know them. I don't go to school with them. I don't live with them. I don't socialize with them. So I really don't know what they're like. I said, well, I must tell you that you could live in this country during the civil rights era and not know what we are as a race of people. I cannot excuse that. Your crime lies in your ignorance. And so it was that that made me, those kinds of experiences, made me decide that I could not afford the luxury of just being an actress that I had a, a number of issues that I wanted to address and that I would use my career as my platform. I have a major concern about young people today, that they have no idea about the price that was paid for where they are today. I remember speaking to a group of young people. It was during Martin Luther King's birthday, and I remember this young girl standing up and asking who was Martin Luther King. There were so many things that ran through my mind. I, I was stunned, first of all. And I began to wonder how this child could live in a household where the name of Dr. Martin Luther King did not reverberate in that house. You know, when we were fighting for rights, we did not want them to go through what we had to go through. And so we were trying to make it possible for them to use their energies and their talents and do other things to help humanity. And because of that, we gave them too much and left them nothing to fight for so that they could understand what it meant. I've heard them say 
It's hard to believe that Rosa Parks couldn't sit in the front of a bus. It's hard to believe that I could not go into a restaurant and sit down and have a meal. They don't believe that. It means not much to them because they can't begin to conceive that that happened. And that saddens me. We got a lot of work to do and we owe it to the generations to come. We owe them a better world. We've devastated this world. Yeah. Don't bring them here if you're not gonna make it worth their while. Cicely's integrity as an actress resides in the roles she chooses to play. Instead of taking on easy characters, she has always sought out roles that make her skin tingle. Cicely says that in 1985, she told her agent she wanted to star in her own trip to Bountiful after seeing that film. Well, guess what happened 26 years later? I was walking around in California. I passed this theater and I saw Geraldine Page's name and I've always been a fan of hers. So I thought, hmm, we'll go see this movie. I went in. I was so moved by it that when I left, I went straight to my agent's office. And I said to him, you get me my trip to Bountiful and I will retire. I said, I just want one more great role and then, you know, I'm finished. Uh, I won't be greedy, I'll just step out of the picture. He looked at me and he chuckled and every now and then I would remind him, where's my trip to Bountiful? Years later, this woman came in and she said to me, I'm planning to produce one of my father's plays with an all-black cast. And she said, my father was such an admirer of you and your work that I know that there isn't anyone else that he would want to do this role. So I said, who is your father? She said, Foot. And the play is A Trip to Bountiful. I was speechless when I was told that I was wanted to play the role of Mother Watts. It had been so many years before when I said to my agent, you get me my trip to Bountiful, never ever expecting a trip to Bountiful, the actual play, but something similar. And to have it happen to me that way was, I don't know, I can't find a word to describe it. What I hope people take away from that piece is the fact that you cannot discard elders like an old shoe. They're human beings, still, with a whole lot to offer, still. You can't just treat them like nothing because chronologically they have reached a certain age. People are worthy of understanding, love, and support. And believe me, I cannot tell you the amount of people who said to me, I thought about my mother or my aunt or my grandmother. And there were things that I wish I had done differently. 
We're all created by one creator and all put on the face of this earth to serve each other. I have something that exists in my solar plexus that when it's not right and hits me there, I'm walking away. I had been offered the role of Christy Love in a television series. I did not like the way it was projecting black woman. That was one of the roles that I could not do. It's so easy uh, when the money is flashed before you to allow that to govern your choices. I've never really worked for money. It's so important for me to have peace of mind, body, and soul than to have all the riches. When I put my head on my pillow at night, I don't require a drug, alcohol, or anything else, just fatigue. Cicely decided early on that her work as an actor would be more than a job, that she'd use her career to help create a better world, and not just for minorities, but for all of humanity. And she has never compromised. It is a remarkable dedication to life's purpose and one that she has striven to fulfill. And she's still at it. In 2013, she won a Tony Award for her stirring performance in The Trip to Bountiful. She said she'd retire after getting a chance to be in the play, but after playing well over 100 roles in her lifetime, she's not planning to stop working anytime soon. For everything you've done so far, Miss Cicely Tyson, you are a master. One of the things that I found frustrating all along in my career was, first of all, how difficult it was to get a job because I was black. And then I was a woman. You know, the, I, I see this whole image as a ladder, all right, where white males on top, all right, white female, black male, black female, with her hands on the last rung of the ladder, fighting to get up. And now it's ageism. But look at me, I'm still working. As I have breath in my body and someone is willing to hire me to work, I would just work until I drop. I mean, what am I gonna retire for? Most people who retire don't live very long, but I know. I told my mother when she was so dead set against my doing this, I said to her, well, one thing is sure, that I can work until I die. There's no age limit. It's something that I can do forever, I said. So I'm secure in that, I said to her. And that's what I meant. I can work until I drop dead. If you have worked most of your life on a job, that's exercise. It stimulates the body, it stimulates the mind. As long as you're here, you're here to do something. And when I've done what he put me here to do, then he'll take me away. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Masterclass, the podcast. You can follow Masterclass on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't already, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Masterclass podcast.